All right, hello and welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. So I've talked before about uh, three different kinds of knowledge that literature can provide us, which are relevant to the world outside of literature. And I mean we can interpret literature in at least three different ways in order to get non-literary knowledge from it. So literature can give us propositional knowledge, behavioral knowledge, and reorientational or just orientational knowledge. I've talked about these in other episodes, but to kind of uh, review. So propositional knowledge is knowledge that, uh, that something is the case. When we read literature as historians or psychologists or other scientists, we're often looking to gain propositional knowledge. Behavioral knowledge, on the other hand, is knowledge how to do something. Um, and literature has been one important ways in which knowledge about how to behave has been culturally transmitted. Um, and then orientational knowledge is knowledge about how to experience the world. It gives us patterns that can help us understand our experiences or make our experiences meaningful. And I took this basic schema, this basic outline, um, from Morse Peckham. Peckham did not say that these three kinds of knowledge were the only kinds of knowledge derivable from literature. They were just the, uh, the only ones he could think of. But according to the philosopher Dorothy Walsh, who I'll talk about today, um, there is a fourth kind of knowledge that literature can give us, and this is what, what I want to talk about. Uh, this fourth kind of knowledge is knowledge of what it's like to have or to undergo a certain kind of experience. This is knowledge of what it's like to be a certain sort of person in a certain sort of situation, having certain beliefs and so on. I'll call this experiential knowledge just to have a convenient name for it. Um, and experiential knowledge seems quite close to orientational knowledge. And in fact, all these kinds of knowledge are related, but, um, but Walsh's discussion of knowledge of experiential knowledge is different enough from what I've talked about before in terms of orientational knowledge that I'm going to treat it as something different, but you'll see some connections between experiential and orientational knowledge as we go. Um, so experiential knowledge, uh, sorry, experiential uh, knowledge is, yeah, experiential knowledge is similar, I would say, to the older idea discussed by various philosophers in the 19th, late 19th, into the early 20th century. Um, so this is similar to knowledge by acquaintance, this older idea of knowledge by acquaintance. But Walsh's idea of experiential knowledge is rather different than, for example, Bertrand Russell's idea of knowledge by acquaintance. Um, and this is especially true because Russell and other earlier philosophers focused on our acquaintance with the world, kind of our direct acquaintance with reality, with the things of the world, while Walsh is interested in acquaintance with um, artworks, and especially with the experiential content of literary art. So to understand the knowledge we get from literary art, we need to think about what literary art is about. So what is it about? What is literary art about. And for Walsh, literary art is about human experience, fundamentally. So the fundamental subject matter of literature is human experience. But literature does not just give us information about experience, which of course you can get in other ways. Um, literature presents experience. It gives us an experience about experience, you might say. 
So you can say that literature is a presentation of human experience so that it may be experienced by another human, by a reader. Uh, by experience here, I mean the uh, workings of, you know, not to be too mysterious about it, by experience, I just mean the, the workings of our various organismic uh, capacities or capabilities like uh, perceptions and cognitions and emotions and so on. So an experience, this is a distinction that Walsh makes um, deriving from Dewey's work. So an experience as distinct from just experience is experience raised to the level of awareness. So when we realize we are undergoing experience, we're having an experience. Experience per se, just experience, is unitary. There's just the world as experienced. But an experience involves a duality of experiencer and experienced, of self, that which experience is, and uh, other, that which is experienced. So in an experience, we realize that we are experiencing something in a certain way. So that distinguishes an experience from just experience. And what a literary artist does is present an experience or set of experiences. The literary artist articulates an experience in language or translates this experience into language, transforms it into language, embodies it or incarnates it in language. The re and the reader's task then is to experience this experience, to participate imaginatively in the experience as embodied in literary language. It's, um, it is to realize what this experience is like. So the reader is, uh, the goal kind of of the reader is to realize what this experience is like, to experience what a certain kind of experience is like. You experience what it is like to be in certain circumstances, to be a king or a pauper or a businessman or a prostitute. What it is like, you experience what it is like to be lost at sea or to fight in the Battle of Gettysburg or to be in a love triangle as a certain sort of person in a certain sort of um, historical or imagined circumstance. But, Walsh warns us, the experience incarnated in the poem, these are her words, the experience incarnated in the poem, the experience that is the very substance of the poem, is not actual experience. So it's not, the experience in the poem is not exactly the poet's experience, because experience per se is an ephemeral thing, right? Experience is not language. Um, it could be, in a certain way, a record of the poet's experience, but literature is not in any simple way supposed to be an accurate record of a particular person's actual experience, right? Um, and anyway, even if it was, how could we know whether or not a poem is an accurate representation of someone's actual experience? Since we didn't have the actual experience, how do we know whether it's accurate or not, even if it's intended to be accurate. So this is kind of a, you know, not that relevant, whether it's an accurate representation of someone's actual experience. So, but, but because of all this, uh, Walsh calls the kind of experience incarnated in literature virtual experience. This is a, uh, uh, this term virtual experience, she borrows from Suzanne Langer. Anyway, virtual experience this has some advantages over actual experience. So virtual experience in literature is more stable over time than, for example, a remembered experience. So as readers, we can return to the stable structure of 
words in the literary text, we can return to this over, ag over again and again to verify our experience, to enrich our experience um, of the text. We can realize, I can know, we can understand the experience more fully because it's sat down and we can return to it in this way. And of course, because the virtual experience is external to us, it's there on the page, in the book, whatever, we can share the experience with others in a way that we can't share our actual experience. Um, virtual experience has what Walsh calls permanent and public presence. Permanent and public presence as opposed to the ephemer ephemeral privacy of most actual experience. Uh, and then from the perspective of the writer, virtual experience can be articulated with an elaboration and a nuance that you can't normally get just by telling someone extemporaneously about an experience, like when you tell uh, your friend what happened that day or something. The very process of trying to write an experience down in a kind of literary form, in a dramatic form, can lead you to notice aspects of it that you wouldn't otherwise have noticed. Uh, the author Ralph Ellison has written about uh, written about one of his stories that it was in the attempt to convert experience into fiction that I discovered that the story's implicit dr implicit drama was far more complex than I had assumed. So it's through writing it down that he realized, you know, trying to write it down, trying to put it into fiction, that he realized it was more complex than he thought at first. Um, the attempt to put experience into a permanent verbal structure that can be experienced by someone else teaches you how complex actual experience really is. And I think great writers are able to pack um, more of this complexity into the written form than kind of normal people. And because we're dealing with writing, the language used to express the experience can be shaped and refined over days or years or decades into something more intricately and carefully structured than what actual experience can give us. Uh, and now we, we need to say something more about what this knowledge of experience is. What does it come to? I've used this phrase, which Walsh, Walsh uses, of knowing what it's like. When we undergo an experience and are aware of undergoing it, we know what it is like to undergo it. This is uh, one common way we have of using the word know, as Walsh points out. So we know what it's like to have a headache, or we know what it's like to lose a contest we really wanted to win, and so on. Like all these different kinds of experiences that we have in our kind of normal life, we know what they are like. Um, but I think these are cases of knowledge in the sense that they're relational. So we know what an experience is like to be, uh, is like, to the extent that we can compare and contrast it with other experiences. We may or may not be able to articulate the, uh, uh, articulate experiential knowledge in words. So we not be able to, we may not be able to really say, um, what it's like. But we can compare it with other experiences we've had, with other sequences of perceptions, feelings, etc. We don't necessarily need language to do this. Um, we may have trouble expressing all of this in speech, and I think this is precisely, at least uh, Walsh argue, argues, that this is precisely where literary art comes in. It gives us techniques whereby what it's like can be verbally expressed. And so Dostoevsky and Melville and Kafka and Wolf and others show us what it's like to live in certain kinds of worlds as certain kinds of people. 
And this, Walsh suggests, enriches our own real-life experience because it gives us a greater range of experience to draw on in interpreting our own experiences. And experiences which are, again, understood relationally as being like something and unlike something else. And in this way, uh, experiential knowledge also seems to blend into orientational knowledge, in which uh, orientational knowledge is when you um, apply a, a literary pattern analogically to your own life. And it kind of orients you in a world of meaning. Uh, so knowledge is usually understood to be something true. If I know that 2 plus 2 is 4, I believe it is true that if you add two things to two more things, you'll end up with four things, right? I think this is a true thing that happens, a true thing about the world. Does this, so does this kind of thing apply to literary knowledge? If literary knowledge is a matter of realization, of knowing what something is like, is there such a thing as true and false literary knowledge? And this is an interesting question, I think. And it turns out that there is more than one kind of truth that we have to uh, disentangle here to understand this question, to answer this question. So earlier I mentioned some different kinds of knowledge, and there seem to be different theories of truth, different kinds of truth that go with them. So with propositional knowledge, like 2 plus 2 is 4, for example, we are generally, generally looking for correspondences between propositions and states of affairs. If I say, to take another famous example, if I say the snow is white, this is true if the snow is actually verifiably, evidentially white. Right? I can go look at it. We can uh, compare our perceptions, whatever. Um, so prop that's propositional knowledge. With behavioral knowledge, we're looking for the appropriateness or the adequacy or effectiveness or maybe uh, utility of some behavior with respect to some situation. So is the behavior useful uh, in this situation? Is it appropriate? Is it effective? Um, is a more pragmatic theory of truth. With orientational knowledge, we're looking for something like the uh, coherence or the elegance of an orientation to reality, of an explanation of or of an explanation of reality. These kind of things, orientation and explanation, are uh, related ideas. So when we're looking at this kind of orientational knowledge, we ask: Do the pieces fit together nicely? Does it hang together? Is it logical? All right. So you may have heard of the coherence theory of truth. All right, so what about the experiential knowledge that Walsh writes about, this fourth kind of knowledge that I've been discussing? So Walsh suggests that the truth of such experiential knowledge can be interpreted in terms of authenticity or inauthenticity. So life experience, she writes, can be more or less authentic and genuine or more or less contrived and faked. We can be open and honest about the kind of experience we're having, or we can deceive ourselves about the kind of experience we're having. So there's, for example, the kind of hedonistic party person who suddenly realizes they've been deceiving themselves about the supposed fun they've been having, that in fact they've been trying to distract themselves from feeling a deep hollow emptiness at the center of their existence. Uh, and the fun they thought they were having was inauthentic because it was an effort at self-deception. And Walsh writes that, uh, quoting, quoting her, uh, the self is to some degree aware of the dishonesty it practices on itself. We can catch ourselves insisting to ourselves that the experience is thus and so, but the vehemence of our insistence is the sign that somehow we know otherwise. 
So we, uh, we vehemently insist that we're really having fun, that we're really in love, that we're really fulfilled, and so on and so on, when we suspect that the opposite is really the case. Right? Like the person who's always kind of uh, bragging is another example. Always saying how great they are when they suspect that actually they are not so great. And uh, I think, of course, on a, on a higher order, higher order level, we could be authentically deceiving ourselves. I think, you know, this gets a little bit complicated. So you could be authentically experiencing self-deception, I think. So even in these kinds of self-deception experiences, there's an authentic level and then an inauthentic authentic level. So our first order experience might be inauthentic, but our second order experience, if we become aware of it, I suppose, um, is to the extent that we're aware of it, maybe is authentic. We can authentically uh, be undergoing self-deception. Uh, kind of in a similar way that a lie is authentically a lie when you actually know what's true, right? Anyway, that's kind of a side note. So actual experience can be inauthentic. So I've been talking about actual experience so far, right? So actual experience can be inauthentic. And literature, which is virtual experience, can also be inauthentic. And there are various modes of literary inauthenticity. Walsh, when she's discussing this, uses words like uh, pretentious, banal, contrived, um, telling rather than showing. Uh, and maybe I can give another example that might be helpful. So when I was a young man, I read Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead and also um, Atlas Shrugged. And both novels uh, are ideological, they're propagandistic. They exist, in other words, to promote Rand's particular philosophy. And this is true of a lot of literature. I mean, it's not um, necessarily a drawback. Um, but uh, it has been 20 years since I've read either of these. But um, in my memory, at least, I found The Fountainhead to be relatively more authentic as a literary experience than Atlas Shrugged. So the characters in The Fountainhead were relatively more subtle and complex or lifelike, we say. Um, and many of the experiences portrayed seemed somehow more real or authentic than the, what I found in Atlas Shrugged. There are scenes that, from The Fountainhead that I still remember kind of vividly and as being uh, true to life. And I can't necessarily, can't really say the same about um, Atlas Shrugged. It's all relative, of course. Different people will experience the books differently. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily describe The Fountainhead as great literature in any case, at least um, as I remember it. But in contrast to The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, I would say, felt more contrived and pretentious in terms of its style and the characters and the situations. So there's a lot of um, what seemed to me at the time to be pretentious attempts at literary description. Uh, the characters often seem more like empty vessels for ideologies, um, more black and white rather than shades of gray. There was a lot of telling rather than showing. There's this famously long speech by John Galt, one of the characters, which goes on for uh, lots and lots and lots of pages. Uh, some of the situations felt really contrived and almost cartoonish, especially at the end. There's these kind of uh, potboiler action scenes with shootouts and pirates flying through windows and that sort of thing. Um, so Atlas Shrugged seemed to me more inauthentic as literature, though so can, you can argue about whether it's uh, an entertaining vehicle for philosophy. Uh, perhaps I would change my mind about these books if I read them again today, 
But my point is, but that's not really my point. My point is that we want literature as a conveyor of experiential knowledge to ring true to our experience, even though it might not be true, even though we might not necessarily believe, uh, it might not you know, align with what we actually believe or what we think is realistically possible. So we can agree with the beliefs and values expressed in a text and also find it inauthentic, right? So to kind of flip it, right? You can agree with an author's philosophical position and still find the work to be an inauthentic expression. On the other hand, you may disagree with the beliefs and values expressed in a work and still find it an authentic expression of experience. So we may not agree with Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment that without God everything is permitted, um, but we can find the virtual experience that leads to and follows from Raskolnikov's belief to be authentic. Even if we disagree, um, we can find Raskolnikov's experience to be true to life in some way. It can ring true for us. And because Dost Dost uh, Dostoyevsky is a skilled literary artist, we are able to say to ourselves things like, this is truly how things might be. This is what things really could be like. This is you know, how someone would really feel or could really feel and act in this circumstance. And likewise, uh, we recognize that a salesman suddenly turning into a giant insect, and here I'm uh, referring to Kafka's The Metamorphosis, um, we recognize that this is not likely to really happen to anyone, but the virtual, virtual experience of it that Kafka articulated, it strikes us as authentic. It's what the experience really could be like if it really happened with this uncanny mix of humor and terror. Um, and the virtual experience presented by the story can even enrich our actual experience by serving as what Eliseo Vivas called a constitutive symbol, a symbol by means of which we understand our own experience. Um, again, this gets back to orientational knowledge. And in this case, our own metamorphoses, our changes over the course of our lives, how we experience these and how these are reacted to by the people in our lives. We can kind of see this understand this through uh, texts like Kafka's The Metamorphosis. So, to get back to our big question here, does a literature provide knowledge? Literature, as Walsh says, is a presentation of ourselves to ourselves. Literature gives us knowledge in the sense that participating in a literary presentation of experience, living through a literary experience, this gives us a sense of what experience is like, or was like, or could be like. Literature gives us a sense of the experiential value of beliefs, or what it means to, what it would uh, mean, or to be like, to have certain ideas or beliefs, or to be in certain situations. And in this way, literature reveals to us possibilities and subtleties of experience that we probably cannot find, really find out about in any other way. Because actual experience, right, is so fleeting, it's very subjective, um, but also because our possibilities for actual experience are more or less limited, right? Everyone's experience is limited in some way. I will hopefully never be lost at sea. I don't spend a lot of time uh, floating around on the sea, but I can experience virtually what it would be like to be lost at sea, what it might be like. To be lost as a certain kind of person in a certain kind of situation, lost at sea. I can do this by means of literature. 
All right, so this is how Walsh gives us a fourth kind of knowledge available in literature, along with what I've already talked about in terms of behavioral knowledge, propositional knowledge, and orientational knowledge. All right, and that is all I have for today. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.